I left David and Candace in Pedro's hands. I won't be long, I told them, bringing in the rest of the Sauvignon Blanc in a terracotta chili and topping off their glasses. Pedro's getting some cheese and crackers ready for you. You sure you don't mind if I step out for an hour, maybe two? I arrived at the Hacienda to find Alvaro's wife, Sofia, in the middle of renovating the old money bedroom, shouting at a couple of workers about using the wrong paint color on the walls his two boys in the patio fighting and crying about whose turn it was to kick some soccer ball around the courtyard. His henchmen huddled in the living room, avoiding all three of them. Where's Alvaro? One of the thugs, the one whose main position seemed to be riding shotgun whenever Alvaro was in the Hummer, jerked his thumb toward the kitchen. Clint, thank you, my friend, for coming. You will see there is something very important we must discuss. So you said, Alvaro, but you know I've got David and Candace at my house, and it's just plain rude to up and leave them. Someone is trying to kill me, and you are worried about being rude. I sighed and took a seat in the chair opposite him at the kitchen table. Why do you think someone's trying to kill you? Too many close calls with crazy bulls in the practice ring this week. I nodded and kept my voice low to keep him calm. But surely, Alvaro, you're a bullfighter. You've had close calls before? In all my years, only two. He rolled his eyes as if he was looking heavenward for someone to thank for saving him on those other two occasions. He pulled his shirt out of his jeans to show me the scar on his lower stomach where a bull had trampled him. A cowboy had to get between the two of us or the bull would have stomped me to death. He let his shirt fall over his stomach again and put his hands together in imitation of prayer. I have this same cowboy working for me in the fight on Sunday. Well, that should make you feel better. Alvaro ignored me and dropped his pants. There is this one, too. The second scar was on his upper thigh, too close to his manhood. And merely the idea of having a wild animal that close to such an area of the body made me flinch. The bull lowered his big head, came at me, gored me, threw me off to the side like I was a rag doll. Pain was so great I almost cried, which would have made my humiliation complete. But you didn't, Alvaro. You didn't lose your manhood or your dignity or your nerve either. How many people would have the balls to go back into a ring with a killer bull after an incident like that? Not too many, right? But you do. The ego stroke seemed to calm him. He rubbed the scar on his thigh and said without looking up at me, I'm worried that if something happens to me on Sunday, no one will know about my money I just transferred. Well, Alvaro, the money is in a bank account with your name on it. Why not just give your wife the bank account information and Jack will take care of getting the money to her if you're, you know, incapacitated or worse. I gave him a small smile, hoping a little gallows humor would dissipate his anxiety. <laughs> what worse? What worse? Wrong strategy. Before I could backtrack, Alvaro stepped out of his jeans and slumped on a kitchen chair, becoming suddenly as sullen as he was manic just moments before. It could happen! Because this fucking bull is crazy in the head. He broke down the barriers in his stall yesterday and then ran all through the spectator area of the arena. It took every cowboy in the place to round him up. I wanted to put my head in my hands and shake the hell out of it. 
If he was so worried about the worst thing coming to pass, what the hell was he doing fighting any kind of bull? And why, after knowing me for less than two weeks, was I suddenly the one who got the call when he needed to be stroked and cajoled before a fight? Where was Javier? Wasn't he the more logical choice? Since when did I become Alvaro's best friend? Look, I said, bravely resisting the urge to shake my head. Call your lawyer first thing in the morning. Get him to make a codicil to your will, including instructions from me on what to do if your wife needs to access the money. That'll take care of all your problems. Alvaro nodded. Well, not all my problems. He smiled for the first time since I'd come over that night. I allowed myself a smile in return, which caused him to laugh. It was such a mad laugh, such a loose blustering series of cackles and guffaws. I had to join him. You are crazy, Clint, my friend. Why would I have a will? I am going to live forever. Saturday morning, we drove down to Eshumal so I could show David and Candace the Mayan ruins there. We took our lunch in town at one of my more favorite restaurants, David and me nursing an extra after-lunch shot of fine sipping tequila. At the same time, Candace made the rounds of the shops, accumulating more and more goods. A Yucatecan cookbook, a hammock from Tixcacab, several Gayaberras for David, a small tinwork Dia de Muertos tableau, all to cram into her luggage for the trip home. By afternoon, it was too hot to do much more than sit around my courtyard, alternating between lying on loungers and sipping cool cocktails. And, of course, taking dips in the pool, which is practically a way of life down here in the hottest months of the year. We had planned to enjoy the light supper that Pedro had prepared for us, and then go to bed early, so we were fresh and rested for the main event the next day, the bullfight that was scheduled to begin at noon. Not one of us got much sleep at all. In Merida, there's a celebration of some sort at least once a week. The cause of these festivities could be the election of a new president, someone buying his first car, young girl turning 15, hell, Christ rising from the cross. The national enthusiasm to celebrate was one of the reasons I fell for Mexico in the first place. I loved the warmth and authenticity and generosity of the people, their consuming desire to share life milestones with food and music and dance. But the celebrations were often impromptu. And that evening's was just downright inconvenient. From about 7 p.m., we were aware of merriment in the square. Happy voices, as well as the aroma of home cooking drifting through the few streets to my door. At 9, we heard fireworks going off on the other side of the cathedral in the town square. Not an uncommon location for fireworks, I discovered. I discovered, though, the cathedral was rarely without at least two or three penitents inside and I often wondered how fireworks helped with their prayers. After the fireworks ended, the mariachi music started, broadcast from enormous boomboxes set up around the square. The dancing and drinking notched up a level and the party began in earnest. Candace thought it was charming, teasing her two cranky men that we should join in the spirit of celebration too, insisting we make margaritas and raise our glasses to whatever it was the people on the street were so happy about, until two in the morning. At that hour, even Candace gave in to her wariness, 
We all took a chilly swim and sat around the cabana and drank the dregs of our cocktails until at last, at four in the morning, the noise subsided. If Pedro hadn't been there to wake us in the morning, we probably would have slept through Alvaro's fight. The three of us dressed lightly in shorts and short-sleeved shirts, candices of crisp white linen that I knew would crumple as the heat in the day wore on. We wore hats on our heads as defense against the blazing sun, and Candace slathered our noses in David's bald spot with sunscreen for good measure. We left my house by 10.30 to head to the arena. Bullfights drew thousands of spectators. I knew from experience that most of the locals would make up a majority of the crowd. They head to the arena about 15 minutes before the event was scheduled to begin. They seemed to be genetically infused with a more blessed sense of time than ours. That did not include the concept of being late or stressing out because one was stuck in a traffic jam. But we were gringos, and I made sure we were on our way long before the roads were due to become congested. Alvaro had provided us with tickets to the event, a special valet voucher that allowed us to drive right up to the arena gate and be relieved of our car, rather than park in one of the far and dusty lots along the arena route and take a mile-long hike to the arena itself. And VIP passes that gave us entree to his family's enclosed box that featured plush upholstered seating rather than bleachers. Air conditioning and a small bar tended by a young Mayan boy and from whom we could choose the refreshments of a menu much more extensive than what I would have imagined. David, Candace, and I chose beers and an enormous bowl of chips that we shared with Alvaro's relatives as they began to arrive. I introduced David and Candace to Alvaro's wife, and she introduced us to all the aunts and uncles, cousins and nephews and nieces, and the rest who'd come to see Alvaro uphold both family tradition and honor. They greeted us in English, but soon reverted to speaking to each other in Spanish, a language that among us only Candace spoke. She seemed to be enjoying an animated conversation with one of Alvaro's aunts, but David and I were relegating to commenting only to each other. I looked around for Javier, but he was absent, which even at the time I thought was strange. I'd also held out a non-unreasonable hope of meeting Alvaro's brother, Oscar, the much more famous bullfighter in the family. We were, after all, in a bullfighting arena, Oscar's stomping grounds, so to speak. And Alvaro had given me a shrug and a maybe when I'd mentioned the possibility to him on Friday night. But he wasn't among the throng of relatives gathered that day either. In the ring, a teenaged boy and a small bull were putting on an exhibition fight. The boy had no sword, only a cape. And the young bull was bouncing around the ring as if he believed the two of them were playing and having great fun. Poor thing. I said to David because... For all my desire to see the first bullfight of my life, I was well aware of the protest around the sport. I hadn't reconciled myself at all to what was the essential brutality of it. He's got no idea he's being groomed to take a sword through the skull. David, older and more resigned, sighed. <sighs> well, you know, when the bull is killed, it's taken to a slaughterhouse and made it to sticks. The meat won't go to waste. By the time the exhibition was over, 20,000 people had poured into the arena to see the main attraction. Alvaro's battle with the grown and widely reputed to be ferocious bull. 
Television cameras from three major local networks had set up to broadcast the event to all the sorry souls who had the ill luck not to be here in person. Trumpets, drumbeats, and 20,000 voices all raised in approval as a parade of local horsemen began. Fifty prime specimens of horse flesh, decked out in colored blankets and headgear made of silver and strung with feathers, strutting in single file around the perimeter of the arena, their owners sitting tall and proud in their saddles, an oversized Mexican flag fluttering over the head of the man astride the lead horse. It was a moving spectacle. I'd never have expected that I'd feel so much excitement at a bullfight, especially before the bull came out. The horse parade was followed by the entrance of the four cowboys who would protect Alvaro. Riding their horses at full speed around and around the perimeter of the ring, kicking up clouds of dust. With the arrival of the cowboys, the crowd, nearly to a person, jumped out of their seats and began to stomp their feet and cry, Alvaro! Alvaro! When Alvaro emerged from the dugout directly beneath our VIP seats, he did so with a customary flourish. His thick, black hair curled around his temples, his neck and his forehead where his sombrero de matador sat lightly on his head. His tights looked as if he had been poured into him, his cock bulging, his ass high and round as he paraded to the center of the ring, waving regally and making a full circle to bow to each section of the adoring audience chanting his name. I had no idea he had such a devoted following. Even Candace gasped at his beauty. I was so mesmerized by the sight of him that it took the sudden hush of the crowd to draw me back into the action. The biggest bull I'd ever seen came charging from a gate across the arena from where Alvaro stood, looking suddenly very small and vulnerable. The bull raged as if someone had just tried to brand him with a hot iron. Alvaro stood, proud and stoic, in the center of the ring, and swirled his cape around him so it flowed like a skirt. The bull charged at full speed, narrowing the gap between bull and matador, tearing through the cape as the crowd let out a gasp, raising dust under his feet and around Alvaro, the red cape fluttering through the haze as the bull sped by his adversary. As the dust settled, Alvaro twirled the cape to his waist and raised an arm in the air. He threw back his head, erect and strong, and to my mystified eyes, unscathed. The crowd erupted and clamored for more. Alvaro indulged them, as the bull, confused and even angrier because of it, turned back to face him. Alvaro held the red cape in both hands, waist level, and let it sway slowly, teasing the beast, hunting the bull as much as the bull hunted him, daring the bull to come at him. I saw his mouth move as if he was taunting, Bring it, you fat bastard. The next charge by the bull came even closer to Alvaro, and the next even closer than that, allowing Alvaro to demonstrate his dangerous trick of seeming to be turned by the bull as it sped past him, emerging from charge after charge with his arms lifted in triumph and a smile on his face. When Alvaro drew his sword, the crowd roared in anticipation, and the bull charged. I saw Candace close her eyes. Unwilling to witness the bull's final confrontation, Alvaro's sword plunging into its neck. But Alvaro swirled the cape before him as the bull neared, twirling it away once more as the bull sped by, flashing the cape and taunting the bull into ever-tightening circles around him. 
passing by the opportunity, spin after spin, to plunge the sword into the animal's flesh. We in the crowd were breathing as one with Alvaro, drawing in air in gulps and holding it tense until the bull completed another circle around him when we sided out. The sound like the soundtrack of ocean swells behind the ballet of the matador. The exhausted bull loped around the ring, dazed by Alvaro's magic, limply pawing the dust with a forefoot, not yet ready to give up. Alvaro looked to our booth, to the two young boys sitting in the front row of it, his sons. He held his gaze, asking the silent question, does the bull die? My eyes shifted to the boys. I was surprised by the depth of relief I felt as I saw them shaking their heads vigorously. No, no, Pop. Alvaro nodded his assent, and with one almost imperceptible tilt of his head to his cowboys, the chute was open and the miserable animal was herded back into its pen. I expected for one twitchy second that the spectators would be disappointed Alvaro had spared the beast but a bright, loud cheer of appreciation for the matador's gallantry rose from the stands. The audience standing as one, the men waving their hats, and the women throwing red roses in the air that landed like drops of blood in the dust by Alvaro's feet. Alvaro pulled off his own hat to toss it in the air, then ran a hand through his hair to pull it off his face. The four cowboys returned to the ring center, leading a titanic, unsaddled black stallion among them. In one swift movement, Alvaro had mounted the Spanish Paso. He kicked the horse and set off on a victory gallop around the arena. A towel came flying out of the stands as Alvaro passed by. He plucked it out of the air, wiped his face with it, and tossed it back into the throng, where it would no doubt become someone's prized souvenir. I felt lightheaded, and the excitement and the heat and the heady odor of horse sweat wafting from the ring. I wondered that Alvaro didn't simply pass out at the sheer volume of admiration and lust being directed at him. What did you think of it, honey? I hated every minute of it, and I think I just had an orgasm. It takes a while for 20,000 people to exit an arena, especially when the matador they've come to see is standing in full view, glistening with sweat and victory, one arm around his beautiful wife, with his youngest son hoisted up in the crook of the other. They knew they had to leave. The event was over, but they moved slowly, turning their heads and craning their necks and letting their eyes linger on the day's hero. David, Candace, and I stood in the background of the VIP booth, not wanting to get in the way of Alvaro's family and fans. We occupied a space that day somewhere above the hoi polloi, but below his doting aunts and proud uncles. Besides, he'd invited us to a party that evening to celebrate his victory over the bull so we had no need to crowd around him now. We'd get plenty of face time with the idol this evening. As we waited for the crowd to thin, so we could make our way outside and claim my car from the valet, my cell began to vibrate in my pocket. Hey, Jack. What's all that noise? Oh, the bullfight. I can't explain it to you. You'd have to see one for yourself to understand what it feels like around here right now. But Alvaro won, and no injuries, and your mother... Clint, tell me about it later. Can you go somewhere where you can hear me? We need to talk. Abe is in the middle of a royal fucking shit fit. Alvaro, disappointed we weren't going to stay for his victory party, but too flush with the victory itself to ask too many questions, readily offered his plane so David, Candace, and I could make an emergency trip north. Great, Alvaro, thank you. 
Can you call your pilot right now and tell him we're on our way? I asked, over my shoulder, already moving through the crowd at the arena. Moses parting the Red Sea, David and Candace following closely in my wake. I handed the attendant at the gate my valet parking voucher and a crisp $50 bill. There's one more just like that if you get my Land Rover here in less than five minutes. The attendant was only too happy to oblige. I called Pedro on my cell phone as I drove, instructing him to have the Cohen's luggage ready and waiting on the curb, and to throw together a duffel with my toiletries and a couple of changes of clothes for me. I'd be pulling up in about 20 minutes to collect everything. I believe we're in the midst of a bit of an overreaction. I agree. I manhandled the luggage away from Pedro and into the back of the Land Rover, and then drove 20 miles over the speed limit toward Merida Airport. David, alone in the back seat, worrying an unlit cigarette, first one he'd taken out of the pack he carried in his breast pocket since he'd come to Mexico, rolling it between his fingers. I told you, I've already taken care of this. What Abe does doesn't matter. I wove in between cars, changing lanes, dodged a small taxi that tried to cut me off, returned a middle finger to the driver I'd pissed off. Really, Clint? Sorry, Candace. I mean, why are you so frightened of Abe all of a sudden? He talked to the feds. The tires squealed as I took the turn onto the road marked private jets only a little too tightly and headed for Alvaro's hangar. As I said... David braced himself against the door to counter the force of my errant turn. I've talked to the people who are auditing the bank. As long as we can pull out of the fire, keep it from going under and needing a bailout, they don't care where the money comes from. There is no reason to fear whatever it is that Abe's done. I don't fear, Abe. Throwing my car into park at the door to the hangar. I am angry with Abe, and he ought to fear me. Coffee. I barked at Tim as we boarded. I felt immediately like a heel, venting my fury on Tim, but not enough to take the time to explain or apologize. Two black, one with cream, I told him, and added, Please. I can't believe Xavier would tell Abe we sold the bank shares to you. David batted the low gold table with his hand. Candace put her hand on her husband's arm. I can't believe he and Abe ran into each other at Pascal's. Xavier's going so downscale. I ought to call that son of a bitch right now and fire his ass. That deal was not his to divulge. I should report him to the bar. David's hands were clenched into fists. I shook my head. Miami's a small town, like every other town on the face of Earth. You travel in a certain circle, you're eventually going to run into all the other people who travel in it too. We never told him the deal was a secret in any way. He and Abe run into each other. Abe brings up the idea of him investing in the bank again. Xavier laughs and wonders why there's a need for an investor now that I'm part owner. And if you fire Xavier, you give up the best attorney in the state. You're getting mad at the wrong person, David. David balled his hands together, Candace still gripping his arm for support. What we've done so far with Alvaro is only the beginning. He's still in business. He's making more money every day. And he's the only businessman in Mexico who's making a lot of money every day. And all that money will need a new home. We're not talking 20 million, David. We're talking 40, 80, 100 million, or more. Abe may be a gnat circling our ass right now, but he could turn into a real pest as our deposits start to grow. The feds won't look the other way forever, not when so much money is involved. Definitely not if Abe keeps making a nuisance of himself. Eventually, someone will pay attention to him. 
we've got to shut him down tonight. I'm trying to make you live it all. I'm just a working man. And oh, my Lord, it's I hope you enjoyed this episode of Stain Fortune. It was produced by myself, Joe Calderwood, and Jeff Messer. Casting by Charlie Wilson. And performances by Haven Kai, Alan Chandler, Lucas York, Lauren Otis, Charlie Wilson, and Brooks Wallace. Music written and performed by Freddie Elmberg. I wage war through the water Thinking on Uncle Sam I'm trying to make you live it all I'm just a working man And oh, my Lord, it says I can't get no sleep, can't get no rest The beauty you've lost Just throw me into the fire So get on your knees and say a prayer for me I'm living this hell, it's eternity Can't get no relief. I've done my deed and I'm hellbound. I can't see my love around no Come.